Hey, folks. Pattern is a disability insurance company, and they know that you want to be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable, and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at PatternLife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Walpaw, and I'm very excited because I have back with me again our pharmacist extraordinaire, Rachel Kruer, who you will remember from when we did Bugs and Drugs Part 1, and uh, she just did a fantastic overview for us of different bugs and drugs and what you need to think about, especially for the uh, surgical ICU. And now Rachel is back, and we are going to go over common infections that you will find in the surgical ICU and how to address them. Rachel, welcome back. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. All right. So let's jump right in. How do you think about uh, or how do you categorize in your mind the common surgical ICU infections? Well, certainly we encounter all kinds of infections in the surgical ICU, but the probably the most common infections that we see are intra-abdominal infections um, and then pneumonia and urinary tract infections. Uh, certainly that list isn't all-encompassing, but um, when we're selecting antibiotics, it's really important to consider what the source of infection is because we need to think about what organisms are most commonly associated with that source. And also, if we're able to obtain good tissue penetration and concentrations when we're selecting antibiotics. Right. I think that's huge. And we mentioned this in our last uh, episode we did together that the minimum inhibitory uh, concentration uh, that you get, your MICs, is going to be in a test tube. You have to know what's going to happen in the body to make an appropriate selection. And so we want to make sure we do that. So when you make an initial selection, um, you're going to, as you said, look at the site of infection and, and what is causing the um, problem. You also want to look at whether it came, like you mentioned last time, from the community or in the hospital. Um, are there other things you think about? Yeah, so I think we've sort of hit on all these, but just to sort of put the list together, when we're thinking about empiric therapy, my first question is always, what's the site that we're concerned about? Antimicrobial should be selected based on the suspected site and the pathogens associated with that site. And then the severity of illness, if a patient is in septic shock, we have less room for error. Um, We know from previous studies that the short, that risk of mortality decreases with the shorter amount of time to appropriate antibiotics. So we want to make sure that we're not missing what the organism could be. And then community versus hospital acquired. If we have a patient who's coming from home, from the community, we're going to be less concerned about things like pseudomonas, probably MRSA, depending on what part of the country you're in. Um, But if we have a patient who's been in the hospital for a while, those organisms are going to be higher on the list for sure. Great. And then we hear a lot, oh, should we narrow? Should we narrow our antibiotics? So How do you decide when to narrow antibiotic therapy? I think the short answer is that absolutely antimicrobial therapy should be be narrowed. It should be tailored once the source has been controlled and susceptibilities are known. Um, Vancomycin should be stopped if resistant gram-positive organisms are not recovered. And and this is really important with our stewardship efforts because we talked a lot the last time about resistance that's developing and, and probably the 
one of the the biggest things that we have control over is to avoid using those broad spectrum agents when they're not necessary. Great. I totally agree. All right. Let's start with intra-abdominal infections, certainly some of the most common we see in the surgical ICU. Um, how do you think about those and categorize them in your head? Yeah, so I think about, so the GI tract is, is, is quite expansive, and, and the organisms that you encounter at different portions of the GI tract are actually a little bit different. And so understanding where the infection is within the GI tract is, is an important component of, of, to think about which organisms are going to be most common. So if we start from sort of from the top, if you will, and, and think about intraoral infections, this is where you're going to be primarily concerned about streptococcus, maybe Neisseria, Peptostreptococcus, intraoral anaerobes, for example. Then as you move down to the esophagus, it's actually fairly sparse flora. Again, strep and Peptostreptococcus would be concerns here. The, the actual uh, other colonizing organism that you would be concerned about if you had, for example, an esophageal perforation um, would be Canada species. So uh, including antifungal coverage in, in esophage- within esophageal perforation um, would be something that you would want to consider. If you think about the stomach, actually the pH of the stomach is, is quite low, and so there's actually very limited colonization in the stomach itself. It does contain some anaerobes, um, but the other thing that you would think about if you, if you had a, uh, a gastric perforation would be H. pylori. So that's something that's, that's different. So probably you would cover anaerobes, uh, gram-negatives, and then consider whether or not H. pylori um, is a possible culprit here if you were considering a gastric perforation. Thinking about uh, the biliary tree, uh, mostly gram-negatives here, perhaps some enterococcus and anaerobes would be what you would cover um, for an infection that um, was biliary uh, in nature. And then as you move down the GI tract from uh, moving into the small bowel and and, um, and then further into the colon, uh, the amount of bacterial colonization increases with the distance from the stomach as the pH changes. And so here um, in the small bowel, you would be concerned about gram-negative organisms, also enterococcus, um, clostridium species, bacteroides, um, perhaps even Canada, and then um, with the colon, uh, enterococcus would, would certainly be um, a principal organism uh, there. Great. All right. So now let's start maybe with the biliary tract um, and the common things we hear are cholecystitis, cholangitis. Um, so how do we think about those things and how do we treat them? Yeah, in general, cholecystitis and cholangitis can be can be treated relatively similarly from an antimicrobial selection standpoint. Um, if the patient um, is coming from the community with uh, community-acquired cholecystitis or community-acquired um, cholangitis, these and the, and the patients are presenting with mild to moderate severity of illness. Something like erdipenem would be a good option. You could also consider a, a fluoroquinolone like ciprofloxacin plus metronidazole. In patients who have a severe presentation or who are immun- immunocompromised, um, these patients, so if they're coming to the ICU in septic shock, for example, in these patients, we would want to be sure that we're not missing something. And so these are patients who empirically would, we would start on uh, piperacillin, tazobactam. Uh, if they had a, a penicillin allergy, uh, you might consider ciprofloxacin or estreonam plus metronidazole. Remember, though, that if you're using ciprofloxacin or estreonam, there, there really is no good gram-positive coverage. And so you might inclu- include vancomycin in these regimens, um, especially if the patient's in septic shock. You may not really need vancomycin um, for a patient who's coming from the community, even if they're severely ill or immunocompromised, because it's not likely that MRSA would be an organism that you would be concerned about here. Okay. And then what about acute cholangitis? Um, acute cholangitis of any severity 
you would probably start with piperacil and tazobactam. Um, and then, uh, again, for a patient with a severe penicillin allergy, uh, ciprofloxacin or estranium plus metronidazole. Um, this would also be a patient that may have a bilioenteric anastomosis. Um, and then for patients that have a healthcare-acquired acqu- biliary infection of any severity, um, again, you would use these same antibiotics. Great. And the other thing I would add is, you know, one of the issues with cholangitis is that there's a lot of pressure often in the biliary tree. And so the reason you're getting, it's common to get bacteremia is because that pressure is built up and it's actually just in a way, pushing the bacteria into the bloodstream. And so really relieving the pressure is sometimes the only way to stop getting more bacteremia. And so this is where percutaneous biliary drains can actually be uh, the only thing that can help if you have repeated bouts of cholangitis without uh, and bacteremia without being able to effectively treat it with antibiotics. Sometimes you have to get that drainage in there to relieve that pressure. All right. So how about peritonitis? That's kind of a, you know, a catch-all that, that uh, we see not infrequently. How do you think about that? Peritonitis does, like you said, it's a, it's a fairly broad term. And so thinking about whether peritonitis is primary, secondary, or tertiary can be helpful in, in determining which antibiotics would be most appropriate. So primary peritonitis, this is what we're, what we're talking about here is spontaneous infection of the peritoneal cavity. So this is usually associated with ascites and liver failure. Versus secondary peritonitis is infection of the peritoneal cavity due to spillage of organisms into the peritoneum, frequently seen with perforation, and then tertiary being recurrent infection of the peritoneal cavity following an episode of secondary peritonitis. Okay. So probably, let's start with secondary since that's probably what we see most commonly. Um, and what do we, what causes secondary peritonitis? Uh, usually a perforation, um, uh, usually a gastric perforation uh, or a perforation of the small bowel or the colon. Um, we talked about, you know, considering for gastric perforation treatment of H. pylori if the patient um, does demonstrate uh, that they're H. pylori positive. Um, in the small bowel, we talked about, you know, really being concerned about gram negatives and anaerobes, where in the colon, um, more concerned about Canada, anaerobes, um, gram negative bacteria, and then enterococcus being um, a heavy colonizer of the colon. Okay, great. And then... Um, what makes it harder, uh, you know, sometimes you're kind of trying to, um, get source control, uh, and it's, it's difficult or you're not having an effective response to your antibiotics. What, how do we think of what patients are at high risk for that? Yeah, the patients who have been identified as high risk um, of failure to gain source control are those who have had a delay in, in, in intervention. So patients who have um, not gone to the OR within 24 hours of identification of a, of a perforation. Those of advanced age, um, those with the high severity of illness, so you know, high Apache 2 score greater than, greater than 15. Um, if they have a lot of comorbidities and high degree of organ dysfunction, low albumin, poor nutritional status, um, the degree of peritoneal involve, involvement um, it, can be a confounding factor. Um, and then the presence of malignancy. Okay, great. So you'd mentioned tertiary peritonitis. How do we identify that? Usually you guys are telling me if we are dealing with tertiary peritonitis because of, of evidence on the CT scan. So um, usually this is uh, these are patients with who have uh, had a fistula form, um, those who have uh, dusky bowel, um, or those who, who where there's evidence of an abscess um, in the abdomen. Okay. And the concern is these often are colonized with resistant organisms. Yeah, because often these patients have been treated for secondary peritonitis already. Perhaps they were started on uh, piperacillin tazobactam because they, a perforation was identified and they were started on piptazo as soon as they got to the ICU. Um, and then because of those risk factors that we talked about, um, we weren't able to obtain source control very quickly. 
and uh, then in abscess forms. And, and, and that's when we really become concerned that, that potentially these patients are going to have a resistant pathogen. Great. So, Rachel, often when I go to you and I say, you know, what do you think we should do for a course of antibiotics here, you have some great questions that you come back at us with. So tell me, what are those questions and why do we ask them? Remember, my questions are coming from a person who wasn't in the operating room and and is also not reading the CT scan, but I'm not going to ask questions like, what did it look like in there in the operating room? What did the surgical team report? Uh, What did they find? Were cultures sent? did did they get it all? Do they think they've? Uh, did the surgeons feel like they uh, obtained source control? Uh, do they have drains in place, or is the abdomen still open and there's uh, just a wound back? Did the patient come from home, um, or or did they come, uh, you know, from upstairs, you know, a, d- a different floor in the hospital? Did they have recent antibiotic exposure? Were they on something already on the floor or at home? Uh, and what's the patient look like now? How sick are they? Are they on vasopressors, um, or or are they on room air and in their hemodynamically stable, uh, those might influence what antibiotics we're going to choose. Absolutely. And the only other one I'd add is probably, do they have any indwelling hardware, um, which certainly can be a big factor too. Absolutely. All right. So um, when we think about mild to moderate community-acquired intra-abdominal infections, um, give me some examples of those and then how we would treat them. Yeah, similar to cholecystitis, um, you could, for these patients as well, choose ertapenem um, as a first-line option. Um, you could also consider a combination of a third-generation cephalosporin like ceftriaxone in addition to metronidazole or a fluoroquinolone like ciprofloxacin in addition to metronidazole. Great. And so what's an, what, is, what might someone come in with from the community? What would, be a, what would you put in this category of kind of a mild to moderate intra-abdominal infection? So this might be a patient who, um, who was... Uh, who came in for an EGD um, and subsequently had a complication. They, they, uh, there was um, a, a perforation that occurred during the procedure, and they subsequently went to the operating room within 12 hours or so. Um, and, and so we would treat them for peritonitis probably for a really short course, but they didn't have any risk factors for a resistant organism. Got it. Great. And so uh, you mentioned ertapenem, moxifloxacin, and then um, if you were going to do a combination, uh, you might do metronidazole along with something else? Yep. With the third generation cephalosporin, or uh, so something like ceftriaxone plus metronidazole, or ciprofloxacin in combination with metronidazole. You know, the guidelines do recommend that moxifloxacin is a, is a good option. Um, that's not something that I would consider at this point um, uh, as a first-line agent, uh, just because the anaerobic coverage uh, isn't, isn't as good. So I might actually use ciprofloxacin that might have a little bit better gram-negative coverage, but also um, add metronidazole to that regimen. Great. So let's talk about more severely ill uh, people. So let's say someone coming in, they're high risk, they're severely ill with a community-acquired intra-abdominal infection. How does that differ from what we just talked about, which was the kind of mild to moderate intra-abdominal infection acquired in the community? For these patients, so these are your patients who are going to be presenting with severe sepsis or septic shock. And so we would... Be it, we would want to make sure that we were covering the organisms that they have. And, and while Pseudomonas isn't necessarily a pathogen that we would be highly concerned about, um, we we would want to be sure that that we didn't miss anything. And the other thing to think about is that these patients are often very vasodilated. They have very large volumes of distribution. They're also going to be getting a lot of fluid resuscitation. And so drugs like ertapenem, for example, or ceftriaxone have... Um, don't have huge volumes of distribution, and their half-lives are relatively short. And so we would want to use something that we would be more comfortable in, especially in a very severely ill patient, um, obtaining adequate t- 
time above the MIC, sort of drawing back on what we learned uh, in the first session. So for these patients, we would use uh, Piperacillin and Tazobactam. Um, if the patient had a um, mild, I would say, penicillin allergy, so um, a rash, not anaphylaxis, then you might consider using a, a cephalosporin like cefepime in addition to metronidazole or even meropenem. Although I would caution you with um, meropenem as sort of a blanket um, go-to agent here because it is fairly broad and these patients are likely, if they're coming from the community and haven't been exposed to antibiotics recently, they shouldn't have multidrug resistant gram-negative organisms. So something like cefepime plus metronidazole plus or minus vancomycin would be a good option, I think, in a penicillin allergic patient. And then if they had a severe penicillin allergy, uh, ciprofloxacin or astranium plus metronidazole um, plus vancomycin for sure in those patients um, would be the right way to go. Great. All right. So what about, do we need to cover MRSA or VRE or Candida routinely? How do you think about that? In the IDSA intra-abdominal infection guidelines, they actually recommend against empiric coverage of MRSA, VRE, or Canada, um, the appropriate antibiotics should be started for these pathogens if they're isolated in culture. There's some caveats here. So MRSA should be started if the patient has um, a very superficial infection, if there's, um, you know, a if there's possible for the, the surgical wound to be involved, or, or if the patient has mesh in place, foreign bodies, like you mentioned before. Um, empiric antifungal coverage should be started for patients with an esophageal perforation. Um, and then there may be patients where you would consider fluconazole um, as a prophylactic strategy uh, for invasive fungal infection. Um, I think that's a little bit controversial in the literature, but, but something that you might consider in a patient that has a high severity of illness. Okay. So... If you now we almost invariably if uh, for kind of undifferentiated sepsis right we don't know the source we start people on vanco vancomycin right um, are you suggesting that's not uh, well supported or are you saying if we know it's intraabdominal that's where we don't want to I think if you know it's intraabdominal if, if you're pretty confident the story just you know it's it's pretty classic um, for a perforation especially in the case we sort of talked about a little bit briefly where someone came in for an EGD and then had a subsequent perforation. In those patients, you can be pretty confident in the source. Um, if you have a co more complicated patient, someone who comes in um, after multiple courses of antibiotics, who maybe has a um, an indwelling catheter for chemotherapy or for parental nutrition, these patients, it, it's much less clear. And in those patients where you're where Intra-abdominal is the most likely source, but there's also possible that they have um, a catheter-associated bloodstream infection or something like that, then vancomycin should be started empirically. Um, but in those sort of classic examples where it's pretty straightforward, I think you can omit vancomycin because MRSA is not commonly a pathogen in the abdomen. Okay. And then should we talk about just maybe briefly, Does we do nasal staph screens. I'm sure probably most places do. Does, the, does whether or not your nasal staph screen is positive or negative play a role here? There have been multiple studies that have demonstrated that in patients who have who are negative for MRSA colonization from a nasal swab, uh, that their risk of an MRSA infection is extremely low, less than 2% even. Um, and so I think if you have that information available, that can be helpful in your determination um, of whether or not uh, MRSA should be MRSA coverage should be included in your empiric therapy. It's possible that you, if in a patient newly admitted to the ICU, you're obtaining that swab at the same time that you're starting your empiric therapy. So you may not have that information. Um, but if the swab does come back negative, that could be even more support. If you haven't recovered MRSA and culture and the um, screening swab is negative, that uh, you could be pretty comfortable in DCing 
discontinuing the vancomycin. Great. So what do you think about duration of therapy for an intra-abdominal infection? How long do we need to keep these patients on antibiotics? The duration of therapy can be guided by the how rapid source control is obtained. In a trauma patient, for example, where source control is obtained immediately following an abdominal perforation, um, then probably 24 hours of, of perioperative antibiotics is, is reasonable, certainly not more than 48 hours. In, in patients who have um, frank contamination um, of their peritoneal cavity, or uh, so so it, maybe those are patients who haven't been given adequate bowel preparation, for example, um, or in patients in whom source control was not readily obtained. So someone who um, there were 12 hours or so, uh, 12 to 24 hours between the time of, of probable perforation and uh, source control achievement, those patients should probably be treated for, for four days. And we, we have good data from the patient the paper that was recently published in the New England Journal in the last couple of years, the stop at trial, to suggest that um, four days versus standards of care after obtainment of source control was not different um, w- with regard to um, reinfection. So now let me ask you, because I know people are going to be saying, especially for the uncomplicated, and you're saying just 24 to 48 hours, they're going to be saying, what do you mean? Are you kidding me? We're going to stop antibiotics after a day? So uh, let's say you have a patient who uh, had a, you know, an un- has an uncomplicated intra-abdominal infection, and um, you start treating them, and they get worse. You probably aren't going to stop, right? Agree. Okay. So this is what we're saying is that this is someone who has, for example, um, an operation, uh, you know, on their on their bowel or something. They um, have some spillage. They're fine clinically. You're treating them almost prophylactically. You don't have. They're certainly not bacteremic. This is just someone who you had, you know, had some bacteria spill in their abdomen, and so you're going to give them a day or two of antibiotics if everything looks good. They're stable. They're not showing any signs of sepsis. Um, they haven't had any positive blood cultures, that's when you would stop after yep, a day or two. absolutely. Okay, great. Um, but interestingly, um, for even a complicated infection, um, that you can do just four days. But again, assuming that they're not getting worse. Exactly. Um, if you have a patient who's worsening, then there's probably a question, an underlying question of, is there a different source of infection or is there just a lack of source control? Because the, the four days, the caveat there is after source control is achieved and, and you feel confident that source control has in fact been achieved. Um, and so if, if that's not the case, then then four days is, is probably not appropriate. Um, and in patients who have severe immunosuppression, um, for example, those patients may also not be candidates for a four-day course of therapy. But for uh, a good majority of patients, four days is probably adequate. Great. All right. Let's leave the abdomen and move on to another common infection, pneumonia. Uh, so up to the lungs. So how about community-acquired pneumonia um, in hospitalized patients? So they're coming in, they're bringing it with them. First of all, how do we know if it's community-acquired and what, how do we think about that? Yeah, for, so community-acquired pneumonia would be what you would what you would call someone who presents to the hospital with pneumonia. So less than forty-eight hours um, after their admission to the hospital, um, and uh, patients that are coming from the community may have risk factors for pseudomonas, but most of them do not. And in those patients who do not have risk factors for a pseudomonal infection, they should be treated with, with ceftriaxone plus azithromycin or moxifloxacin, for example, if they have a, a severe penicillin allergy. Patients may have risks for pseudomonas, and in which, in which case you would um, use cefepime instead of ceftriaxone in addition to azithromycin, um, or consider um, therapy with 
for a severe penicillin allergy, perhaps as Trianam plus moxifloxacin, there are some other combinations that could be considered. And then you would narrow coverage if pseudomonas is not present on culture. So then the next obvious question is, what puts someone at risk for having an infection with pseudomonas, Yes. even though they're coming from the community? And these would be patients who have a history of bronchiectasis, patients who have had a, a recent prolonged hospital stay of, of greater than seven days, perhaps a debilitated nursing home resident, a patient who was recently mechanically ventilated for, for greater than 48 hours, um, patients who were recently on broad-spectrum antibiotics, and then patients who are immunocompromised whether that be due to solid organ transplantation, a hematologic malignancy, bone marrow transplant, active chemotherapy, or corticosteroid use. I get a question often, how much corticosteroid means that you're immunocompromised? And, and typically the real, rule of thumb is patients who are on greater than the equivalent of prednisone 20 milligrams for more than three weeks. Great. All right. So what about MRSA coverage? You said... Um, for intra-abdominal infections, we're not going to prophylactically do this. What about for pneumonia? So for pneumonia, even for patients coming from the community, MRSA is a concern. Um, so this is actually something that should largely be driven by the rates of MRSA that are seen at your institution. Um, here in Baltimore, for the most part, most patients don't require empiric MRSA coverage, but we would consider MRSA coverage in patients who we know to be colonized with MRSA. So if you have that nasal swab back and it's positive, um, or from a recent hospitalization, you know them to be positive, those are patients you would probably empirically have on MRSA coverage with, with vancomycin. Um, immunocompromised patients, and then also patients with evidence of necrotizing pneumonia with cavitation, particularly if it's associated with a preceding influenza-like illness. We know that's a risk factor for uh, an MRSA pneumonia. Great. Now, what about duration of therapy for pneumonia? So for community-acquired pneumonia, three to five days is actually probably all that you need. And this would be for patients without immunocompromised or structural lung disease. For other patients, seven days is probably a reasonable uh, amount of time. These would, this could include patients with moderate immunocompromise or patients even with structural lung disease. And then 10 to 14 days would really only be necessary in patients with poor clinical response who have received initial inappropriate therapy or who are significantly immunocompromised. Great. All right. And then um, what about hospital-acquired pneumonia or ventilator-associated pneumonia? How do we think of that differently? So we're worried with hospital-acquired pneumonia and ventilator-associated pneumonia, we're, we're worried about different microorganisms. Um, there were actually new guidelines published for HAP and VAP um, in September of 2016, so some relatively recent updates, and they identify risk factors for multidrug-resistant pathogens. Um, the risk factors for multidrug-resistant VAP include prior IV antibiotic use within 90 days, septic shock at the time of VAP, ARDS preceding VAP, uh, five or more days of hospitalization prior to the occurrence of VAP, and then acute renal replacement therapy prior to VAP. Um, and the primary risk factor for multidrug-resistant hospital-acquired pneumonia, so HAP, would be prior intravenous antibiotic use within 90 days. So really we're trying to identify, in these patients, we're really concerned about more resistant pathogens, um, not your typical community-acquired pathogens, which would be primarily strep, homophilus influenza, um, some, but here we would be worried about perhaps pseudomonas and MRSA. So the guidelines recommend, the, the guidelines recommends similar antibiotics for both HAP and VAP, um, and the treatment options include an anti-pseudomonal penicillin or cephalosporin, um, so an anti-pseudomonal penicillin being peptazo or an anti-pseudomonal cephalosporin being cefepime or ceftazidime, um, or a carbapenem, although, again, I, I issue my caution here that I wouldn't use car a carbapenem as the 
the first line agent, but if you know that a patient has um, a history of a multi-drug resistant gram-negative infection or high MIC, then meropenem might be what you would reach for, or a monobactam like astrianam. Uh, so these would be the primary agents, the sort of backbone of therapy, and then uh, an agent with gram-positive gram antibiotic with MRSA activity, so either vancomycin or linezolid would be preferred here. And then they do provide some guidance for when you might consider double covering gram-negative infections, and that's really based upon resistance rates at your institution. So if you have more than 10% resistance to pseudomonas with that has greater than 10% um, resistance to one of the anti-pseudomonal penicillins or cephalosporins um, or the carbapenem, for example, then you might add a fluoroquinolone or an aminoglycoside. Again, this is really institution-specific when you might choose um, selecting one of those agents and which agent to select, which which would really give you some additional coverage. Uh, for example, at our institution, adding ciprofloxacin to an anti-pseudomonal penicillin or cephalosporin would not provide you any additional coverage, and so that's not part of what our um, common our, our algorithm for treatment would be. Okay. So, Rachel, sometimes we get things back on a BAL or a, certainly a sputum sample that we that grow out and we don't want to treat them. We say they're just colonizers. What do you generally think of as common colonizers that you wouldn't normally treat? Generally, we consider Enterococcus and Canada species as colonizing organisms, and they don't generally require treatment. So for the most part, those organisms um, don't need to be targeted with your empiric or definitive therapy. Great. And what do you think about duration of therapy for hospital-acquired or ventilator-associated pneumonia? For most patients, seven days is appropriate. If symptoms persist at seven days, you might consider an alternative source um, and or considering a bronchoscopy with quantitative cultures at that point. Um, there's a caveat to that, though. So in patients who have VAP with associated MRSA, bacteremia should be treated for at least 14 days, and that would be the minimum um, after ruling out endocarditis or, or seeding of other, of other sites um, but in general, for most patients who have a gram-negative or a gram-positive organism that's not MRSA, seven days is the appropriate duration of therapy. Great. All right, let's turn to urinary tract infections. So uh, often we see these as catheter-associated infections in the hospital. How do you think about catheter-associated UTIs? I think the first thing to think about when diagnosing a, a urinary tract infection is whether or not the patient actually has a urinary tract infection or do they, in fact, just have asymptomatic bacteria. So um, both a urine analysis and a urine culture are vital for the diagnosis of a catheter-associated UTI. And in fact, um, a, re a, a reflexive approach um, is something that many institutions are trying uh, in order to not over-treat or over-diagnose and subsequently overtreat um, asymptomatic bacteria. And what I mean by asymptomatic bacteria is a positive urine culture with no other signs and symptoms of infection. In this case, no antibiotics are indicated unless the patient is pregnant, the, post, the patient is post-renal transplant or about to undergo a urologic procedure, or if they're neutropenic. The treatment here really is just to remove the catheter. Great. Uh, and so let's say you can't remove the catheter or you need the patient to have a Foley. Then should you change the Foley to a new one and treat? Or what do you recommend doing if you, the patient, you have to have a Foley in and they have uh, what you think is asymptomatic bacteria? I think probably you can continue to monitor the patient. Change the Foley if you can, but pr probably you can continue to monitor and until, until you see signs or symptoms of infection. I think um, it, we... 
sometimes overtreat the presence of bacteria in the urine without these other signs and symptoms. A catheter-associated urinary tract infection is characterized by signs and symptoms including fever or rigors with no other source, with um, potentially nuanced delirium, malaise, or lethargy with no other source, and suprapubic or, or flank pain. Um, in addition, it requires the presence of pyuria and a positive urine culture. So this would be greater than 5 to 10 white blood cells per high-powered field, and then also a urine culture with greater than 1,000 colony-forming units per ml. Okay, and so if you have that, then how do you treat? In those patients, um, in patients who are stable with no evidence of upper tract disease, again, removing the catheter if possible, um, and without evidence of upper tract disease, you could consider monitoring alone. Often in these patients, especially if they're sick in the ICU, if they do have evidence of uh, no upper tract disease, but, but in fact it appears that they have cystitis, we will often treat them. Um, and we would use an agent like ceftriaxone, for example. Um, in a patient with a severe penicillin allergy, perhaps ciprofloxacin would be your alternative agent. But again, looking at uh, your institution or even unit-specific antibiogram would be helpful. In a patient who's severely ill or in a patient with evidence of upper tract disease or a patient who's been hospitalized for a longer duration of time, greater than 48 hours, um, then you might use uh, a broader agent. An anti-pseudomonal uh, cephalosporin is probably the most optimal, um, at least by our susceptibilities or our antibiogram, I should say, here. So that would be like cefepime. Cefepime would be a good option here. And, and for a severe penicillin mm -hmm. allergic patient, as M would be a good option. And when you say upper tract disease, you're talking about involvement of the kidneys. Exactly. Okay. And wh how would that present? More severe illness, more rigors and fevers? Yes. More s systemic signs of infection. Exactly. So fever, um, an elevated white blood cell count, um, perhaps they would have rigors. Um, and these patients... Typically, these patients even might present with urosepsis, and we try to catch it before that occurs. But um, certainly, if a patient presented with urosepsis, using an, a broader agent like cefepime would be optimal. Great. And how long do you treat for? Seven days is typically uh, the duration of therapy that you would need here. Great. All right. So um, let's say, Rachel, that you've, let's just talk through a case. Let's say you've got a 58-year-old woman with ulcerative colitis, and she's in the ED with worsening abdominal pain, despite being on five days of antibiotics. She gets a CT scan, which shows some free air in her abdomen, um, and they call surgery. Uh, and then she goes to the OR, has lysis of adhesions and a hemicolectomy. And then she ends up in the ICU, and she's got um, a discontinuous bowel. Her abdomen is still open. She's sedated. Uh, what do you want to know? What would you be saying to us uh, when we ask you how we should treat or if we should treat? Yeah, so some of the first questions that I would ask is, what did, what did it look like in there? Did they Were the surgeons able to obtain source control? What did you find? Um, if, if the answer was that you found a perforated ileus, um, something like that, a, per, a perforated small bowel with gross fecal contamination, um, I would ask if we were able to obtain peritoneal cultures to see if, um, if that would help us guide therapy in the future. I would also try to assess whether or not um, we had source control, that being the, the biggest thing. Um, so the d duration of therapy would probably be dependent on whether or not we obtain source control, but probably it's not going to change empiric therapy uh, a lot if, if we know she had gross contamination and had previously been on antibiotics and presents in the way that you described with a high severity of illness. 
All right, so let's say that uh, they didn't place any drains because her abdomen is open. She's got a wound back on. They thought, well, no, we don't think we got it all. We're probably going to have to take her back for a further washout tomorrow. And she came from home. Um, and right now, she's actually hemodynamically unstable. She's on presser. She's got a white count of 25. She's still febrile. Um, what would you be asking at this point? Um, so the things that I would want to know in order to decide what antibiotic therapy, because it, it, it sounds like it's pretty obvious that, that this patient um, is, in, is in shock and, and presumably septic shock. So I would want to know what the patient, what antibiotics the patient received at home before she came in um, and, and if she had any drug allergies that we needed to be concerned about. So let's say she was on cipro and, uh, ciprofloxacin and metronidazole at home. Would we continue that or would we choose something else? So I think we would definitely choose something else, um, especially given that resistance can occur pretty quickly uh, for patients who are receiving fluoroquinolones. Um, I would want to know, so the fact that she was receiving Cipro and Flagyl, it could be because it's convenient and there's some data for use in, in patients who who have um, inflammatory bowel disease. But I would want to make sure that she didn't have a severe penicillin allergy and, and that be part of the reason why she was receiving Cipro and Flagyl. Um, so that would be something to really, really important to hash out. If she didn't have a penicillin allergy, I would probably start with our with our sort of go-to option, which would be piperacillin tazobactam. Um, in a patient who presents with this high severity of illness, who's recently been on antibiotics, especially if she had um, any previous lines in place, I would add vancomycin empirically until until we sorted out um, exactly what uh, is going on. Great. So that sounds good. Now, what if she did have a severe penicillin allergy? So if she had a life-threatening penicillin allergy, then I would probably avoid any beta-lactams. Um, so if a, a history of anaphylaxis would 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 sort of have me consider not ciprofloxacin because she was on that recently, but estrianam instead. So I would use estrianam and metronidazole um, for gram-negative and anaerobic coverage, vancomycin for gram-positive coverage because remember estrianam doesn't have any. Um, and then considering her high severity of illness, um, I might add an aminoglycoside, knowing that at our institution, we have some holes in the pseudomonal coverage and, and other gram-negative coverage when we think about Astrianam. If she had a mild penicillin allergy, if you told me that she had a rash um, as a child when she received penicillin, uh, then I wouldn't have any concern with, with re-challenging re with something like cefepime plus metronidazole, and I would add vancomycin to that probably as well. Great. And then because we haven't got definitive source control yet, we're not going to start counting days of therapy. Is that right? We're going to wait until they get definitive source control, get everything cleaned out, and then start counting. Exactly. And how long would you treat once source control is in place? Once source control is in place, given the fact that she's not immunocompromised uh, and um, came from home, once we have source control and we know that we're on the appropriate antibiotics based on our culture data, then I think uh, four days of therapy post-source control would be appropriate. Great. All right. Well, thanks for going over that case, Rachel, and thanks for uh, coming in to do part two of Bugs and Drugs. Any last thing you want to add before we close? I don't think so. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks so much. All right, folks. That was Rachel Kruer, pharmacist extraordinaire. Really a great two-part series there. Uh, if you have any comments, please leave them at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com. Let us know. How do you handle intra-abdominal infections or pneumonia or bladder infections in the ICU? Do you have any different experience? And we can all learn from what you have to share. You can also, of course, always get a hold of me, ACRAC at ACRAC.com. 
If you haven't or you haven't in a while, please consider either going or going again to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating about the show. It really helps others find the show, and we really appreciate it. And, of course, if you are interested in supporting the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. And even just a dollar or two can make a big difference in helping support the making of the show. Thank you so much. All right, that's it for today. For the ACRAC podcast and Rachel Kruer, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.